Jesus House in Pursuit of God Discovering Purpose Maximizing Potential Impacting Lives This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London God bless you want to thank you for your word. Uh, Let it do what your word says it will do. Let it set us free. Let it bring illumination. Let it break yokes, lift burdens, strengthen us, challenge us. Let it do that and more, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. 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 Give you a bit of, um, a bit of, a heads up just to say uh, this message might be longer than normal and the reason is because this is the third part of our series on the new and your finances and we are determined to finish it today. Um, I also think it might be one of the most important messages I have shared in my life. Um, the people I mentor who are very close to me, and some of them are here and some are wat- watching, have said to me over the years, this area of your life, why don't you talk about it a lot more? And they have put a lot of pressure on me to say, we've seen this area of your life, and they have because of how close they are to me, but we want you to share more about it because the way it has blessed us because we are so close uh, in terms of our relationship, it should bless many. And so what I'm going to share with you is really, really my life uh, in this expression. Um, it's, I, of course, I will be sharing principles, but I don't think there's anything I'm going to talk about now that is not an integral part of my Christian work and my life. Um, And so I pray you receive it. It's the third part in our series uh, on um, the new and your finances. In the first part, uh, we spoke about uh, uh, the, we spoke about, we started talking about money and we spoke about two basic principles, that of ownership. Um, If you remember, we, we understood that Part of the challenge today is that people think they own the money or the material things that, that have come their way. And we said the thinking of the kingdom is that we are merely stewards of God's resources, uh, that we don't have any ownership of God's resources. And that is significant in how we treat the resources and how we use the resources. The second thing we spoke about as a foundation was We spoke about the purpose for those resources, uh, that God is a God of purpose. God brings those resources our way um, because there is a purpose for them. And of course, we get blessed because God is using us. And I'm not sure if I painted this picture, but if you can imagine um, all the pipes that bring water to our taps, Um, the purpose of those pipes is to bring water from the reservoirs or wherever the water is, bring them to your home, 
out through your, 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 your taps so that you can uh, use the water. That's the purpose. But how many agree that as the pipe serves its purpose, a conduit, uh, the pipe gets wet in the process? Uh, does this make some sense? So God uses us um, to channel his resources to, to fulfill his plans and purposes. And of course, we get blessed in the process, but our focus is not on the blessing. Our focus is on presenting ourselves to God so God can use us to touch the world, change the world, make a difference. Um, and we spoke about that. And the second, the second, um, se um, second part of this teaching we spoke about other things, but we spoke specifically about the spirit behind money. And I remember showing you a pound, a pound note and a, a dollar note and saying to you, this is more than paper. The Bible makes us understand that. It's more than a medium of exchange. It's a lot more than that. We're spiritual people and we must understand that. That there is a spirit behind money. Um, and I remember saying to you, that it's the one spirit that, that God says you can't serve me and mammon at the same time. Yeah, he wasn't talking about a pound note. He was talking about the power that is behind money. And the aim of that power, that idol, is worship. It wants to get us to worship it, to uh, elevate it, to so allow our lives to be controlled by it, to live for it. And we see that all over the world, the religion of materialism that has a hold on the world. But the kingdom of God must be different. And, and, and we went through many scriptures that almost put fear in you if you don't give it balance um, as to the power of this idol to take over a life. And so we then said that what God wants us to do is to conquer the idol, to subdue it, and to use it, because we must use it, um, this medium of exchange. Nothing happens literally without it. And, and so for us as Christians, we subdue it, we conquer it, uh, we strip it of its power, and it literally becomes a messenger for us. Um, and and we, we make sure that we don't find ourselves in a place where we love it. Uh, the, we remember the scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's, it's loving it that is the problem. So we know it's a tool, but to use it, you must subdue it. And today, I was going to end by talking about, uh, the, there are many, we talked about a few ways, but this is the one way that we strip that idol of its powers and send it like an errand boy to fulfill God's plans and purposes. And if you want a title for today's message, it's the power of giving, the power of giving. You know, giving is the culture of our kingdom. It's the philosophy of our kingdom. The king of our kingdom has directed us as citizens to be givers. Generosity is in our DNA. It's modeled by the king, and, and we're expected to follow that. And it makes a lot of sense when you look at the world today. 
it's obvious that this was God's way of redressing the imbalances that exist in the fallen world where greed and wickedness has led to many having little or nothing and, and a few having much more than they need. And so, of course, we can see that in that kind of broken and fallen world, part of God's solution is to give his children a spirit of generosity so that they can redress this imbalance by their heart to give. It's God's way, God's instrument, and so are you and I, to bring healing to wounded and hurting people who are victims of the inequalities that exist in a dysfunctional world. Thank God for all the various agencies and organizations that are, that are doing an amazing work redressing this imbalance. But it's sad to me that the church is not at the forefront because that's amongst the things the church was designed for. That's one of the designs of the church. That the church would be God's tool to reward and to bless in this manner. God's way of channeling resources that would have been otherwise unfairly distributed. It's our DNA. So the psalmist says in Psalms 37 verse 21, the wicked borrows and does not repay, but the righteous shows mercy and gives. The righteous shows mercy and gives. It's who we are. And when Paul was encouraging the early church, who are such a model for a church that has at, at its heart generosity, in Acts the 20th chapter and the 35th verse, Paul says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's more blessed to give than to receive. In our kingdom, it is more blessed to be a giver, to have that heart of generosity. Nothing wrong with receiving, especially when you're in a difficult place. But Paul says it's more blessed to give, to be a giver than to receive. You see, giving dethrones that idol of money. It strips that masquerade of its clothing, exposing it. In his book, Money, Sex, and Power, Richard Foster says this. Engage in the most profane act of all. Give it away. The power that energizes money cannot abide by this most unnatural of acts, giving money. Money is made for taking, for bargaining, for manipulating, but not for giving. This is why giving has such ability to defeat the powers of money. 
That's how we dethrone the idol, by giving. By having a heart of generosity. You see, in the battle for our souls, in the battle for our lives, and there is a contention that is going on for the soul of man and especially for the soul of a Christian. And in that scripture that I referenced where Jesus talks about you can't serve mammon and God at the same time, Matthew the 6th chapter and the 24th verse, that battle is laid bare before us. He says in that scripture, no one can serve two masters. So what he's saying is that there are two competing, or at least there's one competing with God. Let's not, let's, not, let's not elevate money to where it shouldn't be. To be the master of our lives. He says you can't serve the two. You can't have two masters. He says, for either he will hate one, the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So it's a contention for our lives, our souls. Mammon, money, wants to be the idol that rules our lives, wants us to be submitted to it, worship it, elevate it to a place where we worship it in our lives. And Jesus says you can't do that. that on the throne of our heart, and there's only one seat, one throne in our heart. Only one person can sit on it. It's either God or it's some other idol. And in, in this day and time, far ahead of the many other idols is mammon. And we see it in the cathedrals of worship that used to be the malls, but has now moved online. John Wesley says, if you have any desire to escape the damnation of hell, give all you can, otherwise I can have no more hope of your salvation than that of Judas Iscariot. What was he saying? There's no space in our heart for God and. It's either God sits on the throne and the way we make sure that this sneaky idol does not sneak in is to ensure that we are givers. Giving strips the idol of its power. And giving also stimulates our faith and authenticates our walk with God. <laughs> the joy that comes, and some of you know what I'm talking about, with knowing that God has used you that God has chosen to partner with you to change a life, to make a difference, to affect a community. It's a humbling feeling that the God of this whole earth, this awesome, majestic God, all-powerful God, looked at you and thought, come alongside and let's together affect that life. And if you've been there, you will understand what, I, what I'm talking about. The humbling feeling. The, the privilege you feel that you are a part of God's plan. That he looked at that 
that community or he looked at that person and he thought, who can I use to make a difference there, to change a family, change a life, to reward a person, to bless someone, and he chose you. It gives authenticity to our walk with God. Frankly, it's a boost to a person's Christian walk. That's why you find a lot of times you might be down in the dumps and you're, you know, you're in that place that we get to sometimes and an opportunity to bless someone, to sow a seed, to give, to make a difference comes. And you do that and suddenly that weight lifts off you. Nothing has changed, but it's the realization that I am a part of God's plan. And of course, we know that the way of our kingdom, whilst that is not the focus, and you see, this is how, this is unfortunately how the message has been adulterated slightly, and it gives, it sends the wrong message. Because the focus, the reason we give is not because we are blessed by the giving. It's a byproduct. We give because we have experienced the love of God, and when you've experienced the love of God, you just want to make a difference in every way. So someone else can in a practical way experience the love of God. But it doesn't mean that we don't know that the way of the kingdom is that the giver is always blessed. Luke 6, verse 38. The Bible says, and this is the Passion Translation, give generously and generous gifts will be given back to you. Shaking down to make room for more. Abundant gifts will pour out upon you with such an overflowing measure that it will run over the top. And this is critical. Your measurement of generosity becomes the measurement of your return. The generous spirit will always be well watered. It's the way of our kingdom. Our kingdom is not the kingdom of the world. We have our constitution. We have our culture. The way our king wants things done. Paul says a similar thing as he encourages the church in Corinth to get this philosophy, this mindset, this way of living, this kingdom way. He says in, in 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, the sixth and seventh verse, he says, here's my point. A stingy sower will reap a meager harvest, but the one who sows from a generous spirit and it's this generous spirit that is the key. The one who sows from a generous spirit will reap an abundant harvest. He says, let, let giving flow from your heart, not from a sense of religious duty. Let it spring up freely from the joy of giving. And all because you know that God loves 
hilarious generosity. That's, God just loves it because that's who he is. And you know, I love the, I love the, 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 the picture the Bible paints that helps us understand giving in the kingdom. I love the way the Bible repeatedly would use uh, sowing and reaping, um, sowing and harvest. That's a whole sermon in itself, uh, from the putting of the seed in the ground to the watering of the seed to the giving the seed the right nutrients um, to the seed starting to grow. Uh, it's a whole sermon in itself. But with that picture at the back of our minds, I wanted to share with you uh, seven fields that I, I know from my personal experience, I'm about to share my, my personal life with you, that are covenant fields that God would have us. I'm sure you can find more than seven in the Bible, but these seven have literally shaped my life uh, and helped me to dethrone the idol. So it has no, that idol has no control over my life. You know, we have to get to the place where Paul got to where he says, I can abase and I can abound. What was he saying? I, I'm, I'm a content man. If I don't have, it doesn't change anything. When I have, it doesn't change anything. So what are these fields? And I feel these fields are covenant fields. That's, I, I genuinely feel so. I feel that out of God's word, these are, these are fields you, that God would have us sow into to make a difference, to reward, to bless. Number one, it's the poor, the needy. Now, the truth is that I could actually just do a whole Sunday on this. Because the, the pain is that there is so much poverty in the world, and yet the church is in the world. that the church is not driving the world to eradicate poverty, that we are playing catch-up to other organizations. It's not the way it should be. When you read the Bible from the Old Testament to the New, a constant thread is the church being challenged to make a difference in the lives of the poor. Proverbs 19, verse 17, the Passion Translation, the Bible says, every time you give to the poor, you make a loan to the Lord. And then it says, don't worry, you'll be repaid in full for all the good you, in full for all the good you have done. Every time you give to the poor, you make a loan to the Lord. God, God counts it. He, he says, for what you have done, I owe you. And why is he saying that? Because you have been Christ here on earth. 
Someone has felt the love of Christ in a practical way because you have yielded yourself to the Spirit of God and you have been obedient and you have allowed God to use you as a conduit to lift someone from the, from the pit of poverty, to change someone's life. Proverbs 14, verse 31, and I could run through numerous scriptures. Insult your creator, will you? That's exactly what you do every time that you oppress the powerless. Showing kindness to the poor is equal to honoring your maker. We can sing songs and, and, and assume that's the height of honor. We can do all the religious things in an attempt to honor God. But God is watching the heart. And when he sees a generous heart, that allows him to use that person to make a difference to the poor, God says, you are honoring me. And if you needed any encouragement, the psalmist gives us encouragement, Psalms 41 verse 1. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. It's a covenant God has. Because you consider the poor, because you allow me to use you to make a difference. When trouble comes, I will be there for you. And when you look through the Old Testament, you find that God created systems that took care of the poor and were expected to just do the same. Apparently, we are told that there is enough wealth in the world to eradicate poverty. It doesn't make any sense that in the Western world, mountains of food are destroyed. And in parts of the world, people can't eat a meal. It, it makes no sense to me. But it's the system that man has created, the worldly system this Babylon of the world that wants to entrench the iniquities and the church should be fighting against it to say that should not happen. It's not the way of our Lord. So in the Old Testament, systems were created. So when you were harvesting, for example, and I'm sure you remember this with Ruth. That's how Ruth survived. When you were harvesting, the poor people were allowed to glean from your harvest. And what was gleaning? They were permitted unto your land by law. And they would follow the, the harvesters. And as the, as the harvesters were being drawn by the horses and harvesting, there'd be parts of it that would fall off. And you were not allowed to go back and pick up what fell off. You left it there, and the poor people who were un permitted onto your land would be allowed to pick from the grain that had fallen off, and they would go home with baskets full so their families could eat. It was the law. And I'm sure you remember that's how Ruth met Boaz, because she was allowed onto his land to glean. And when he saw her, he then asked, 
Who is that? May somebody ask, who is that? That's another story. And follow land after seven years. Leave the land follow after seven years. That was the law. But you left it fallow so that, of course, the land could regenerate itself, but also so that those who were poor could come onto the land, and as the land was regenerating itself, they could take some of the fruits, some of the crops, so that they could eat. It was in the system. So number one, the poor. What are you doing about the poor? And if you're listening to me, television, or you're sitting here, or it's being beamed live to you, can I announce to you that you are in the 10% well-off in the world? Maybe 15%. If you're sitting here, Compared to most of the world, you are very well off. You eat three square meals a day. There are large parts of Africa, parts of Asia, where people don't eat three square meals, not because they don't like the idea, but they can't afford it. So we can't stay here and get caught up complaining that we didn't find our favorite cereal on the aisle in Tesco. Because I like Weetabix, and I don't like Rice Krispies. So there's a crisis, and heaven should go to work to make sure there's Weetabix. What are you doing about the poor? If God looks at your life, if we get your bank statement, can we see that part of what God has put in your hand to be a steward is changing somebody's life somewhere who will be considered poor and needy? Number two, widows and orphans. I'm not sharing with you anything that is not a part of my life. Trust me, everything I'm about to talk to you about is a part of my life, a major part of my life. And talking about widows and orphans, when I was writing this, you know God will chastise you. So Shola, he, he told me that what we do for the widows and orphans, we didn't do it this year. So I was writing it to come and preach to you. God said, preach to yourself what you've always done over the years because of COVID and all this stuff. We just didn't do it. So God said to me, do you know, what, do you know how that made a difference in their lives? And at the time you should have done it, you didn't. I was totally chastised by God, completely. Because as a lifestyle, we've done this, it's our lifestyle. But we just got carried away in the last year trying to survive. And we just didn't. And so here I, here, I, here I am penning a sermon, and God is saying, preach your sermon to yourself first. 
James 1 verse 27. Of course, we always ask the question, what is, tr- what is real spirituality? You know, Mark, spiritual man, spiritual woman, what is that? Seven hours praying in tongues, 21 days you're fasting, no food. Oh, by the way, the fast is starting on the 1st of November for 40 days. Yeah, just, just, just to put that in, I, I can see somebody's, somebody's mind has just been messed up. <laughs> but, but I, I, I mean, God told me about, I was, I was away in the Midlands, I was speaking at all nations. Now, um, it's a digression, but three weeks ago, I said to Shola, I said, God said to me, these are unprecedented times. Your prayer has to be unprecedented and you're fasting. So I said to Shola, I think God wants to call me into a long fast. And I said to her, I said, but I just don't feel like it. I said to her, I'm tired. The thought of no food. You know, wife, you can remember that conversation. I said to her, I just don't feel like it. I I said, I I just don't. I said, God, there has to be another way. This was three weeks ago. And then about a week ago, the Spirit prompted me, when are you going to start this fast? And I said to another friend of mine, I said, I think God is calling me into a long fast, but I just don't want to do it. So I go to preach at a conference. I'm speaking. And after I speak, Lou Engel. Anybody know Lou Engel? Yeah, okay. Yeah, one of the um, prophets out of America, intercessor for the nations. Great man of God. He speaks live from America. Half the time, he was talking about 40-day fast, 40-day fast, 40-day fast, what it did, what did the God did. After a while, I said to Steve, my, my host, I said, Steve, can you tell God for me that I have heard that I will, do the, I will do what he wants? Now, of course, you know I was speaking not for myself. For us. <laughs> True spirituality that is pure in the eyes of our Father God, is to make a difference in the life of the orphans and widows in their troubles and to refuse to be corrupted by the world's values. And if you remember, one of the scriptures we started with was Romans 12 verse 2. That we shouldn't be patterned after the world's ways that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And then we, we can enter into God's perfect will. And so it says we can't be corrupted by the world's values. That's another kingdom's way of doing their thing. We must submit to our, our own kingdom's way. And it doesn't matter if the other kingdom doesn't understand it. It doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to them. They are experts at doing their own thing, and they don't care that, whether it makes sense to us. And so part of our kingdom value, values, part of what true spirituality is, is that wherever we find a widow or an orphan, or where there are widows and, of, and orphans, we take care of them. Now, I used to think that it was an Old Testament thing because I thought 
then widows and orphans were not taken care of. But here it is sitting in bang in the New Testament. And so I understand it's not an Old Testament thing. It is just the way of our kingdom that a woman who has lost her husband or children who have lost their parents should find love and support within the family of God. Number three, the fields I'm talking about, the church. <laughs> the scripture that a lot of people, it just causes hackles, Mark, once I say the scripture, hackles, you know, all kinds of spirits just come out. Malachi, the third chapter, verses 8 to 12. It's interesting how people will say, I want Abraham's blessing. I want the Psalms that, 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 that really, you know, I, I like, we quote the Psalms. Anoint my head with oil. My cup will run over. And we love the Psalms where he's dealing with enemies. They fall into the pits. But the moment we mention Malachi, everybody says that's in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament. Well, the Psalms are in the Old Testament too. Leave the whole Old Testament alone. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a, with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. This was God's anger against the nation of Israel because they were doing their own thing, building their own homes, and they were not concerned with his, with, with, with his own thing, his own agenda, his own purpose. He says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. What does God say? Try it. That's what he says. Try me. And he goes on to say, and I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. I know there's a lot of controversy in parts of the church about the tithe. I've gone past that controversy. I've come to understand that the tithe, that scripture, is a scripture of love. It's a scripture of love to a people who don't yet have the grace to flow into the fulfillment of the scripture. Because, of course, we know that the Bible says that the New Testament fulfills the old. So what is the fulfillment of this scripture? where God says, where the scripture says, give 10% to God. The fulfillment, Mark, 
is that in the new, it is not 10% you give to God, it is 100%. In the new, you're not giving to God. You are asking God if you can use for yourself what is his own. And how many of the church are there? And so the act of grace from this scripture is that since you're not there, you, do, you can't get to 100%. Start with 10% and save yourself. But really, it's more. So of course, I started tithing 10% when I gave my life to Christ. I won't tell you how much I'm, I'm giving now. Trust me, it's much more than 10%. I'm actually saying to God, God, before I die, at a ripe old age, I want to arrive at a place where I will look at what you are blessing me with, giving me to steward, and I will be able to say 95% of it goes back. I'm not there yet, but I'm not at 10%. Come past that. When you have that spirit of generosity, you're looking for opportunities to be a blessing. The excitement that God can walk with you to fulfill his plans and purposes. So, we've been sharing vision. The new, the new, the new. We haven't asked for any money. But do you know that there are some people who have come to me. I haven't, we, haven't, we haven't said anything about money. We're talking about hubs and exp expanding. We know we need a new location for church because next year we have to move out of here. You know, we're, we're sharing all this vision about uh, uh, rivers and, and you know, all these new things God is doing about planting hubs all over the nation. Do you know that some people have already come to me to say, Pastor, those things you've been sharing, I'd like to be involved. Can you give me an idea what kind of costs? The interesting thing is that I don't even know. It was them asking me that now made me start to think of the cost of it because I was just sharing vision. But do you know, there'll be thousands who will hear it and there'll be no connection whatsoever. It hasn't registered in a lot of minds that maybe God wants to, you to partner with him to make this vision come to pass. And many will hear it, will eventually catch on when we say, oh, we want to now raise funds for hubs. And they, oh yeah, they want to raise funds for hubs. But there are some who are so far ahead because that's how they walk with God. They understand that God uses them. Such people are constantly looking for opportunities to be used by God to be a blessing. The spirit of generosity that God wants in the church is not something that's, that started now. It was something that he put in his children as they left Egypt. 
And that's why he caused that great transference of wealth. They, 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 they totally took the Egyptian economy with them when they were going. And because he knew they had a, a heart. There were they, 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 many issues with the children of Israel, but in terms of generosity, they got it. So when Moses called for an offering in the wilderness to build the tabernacle, this is the testimony that should challenge us. Exodus 36, verses 5 and 7. And they spoke to Moses saying, this is the people who were to collect the offerings. The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work with the, which the Lord commanded us to do. They said to Moses, it's too much. What kind of people are this? They bring too much, Moses. Much more than we need. So Moses gave a commandment and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp saying, let, let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained. What kind of a church was that? Where I had to say to Mark and, and Badge and Doc and Bola and the rest of the pastors, please go, go around and tell the teams, it's enough. Stop them. Restrain them. How many know that's unnatural? It says the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done Indeed, too much. And you know, when we give, we always give led by the Spirit of God. That's what the Old Testament church didn't have that we have. That we are led by the Spirit of God in our giving. And sometimes the Spirit of God will lead you to give sacrificially. I encourage people to plan their giving. I encourage people to prayerfully plan their giving over a period. But I always say to them, leave room for the Spirit of God. Of course, he helps you plan it, but there are times he will come to you and and call you to do something that is sacrificial. Jesus sat at the treasury to teach us this truth. As he sat there, Mark the 12th chapter, verses 41 to 44, watching what was being given. So please, let's not say my giving is private. It's private to, to us here. It's private, keep it from me, but don't imagine that heaven is not concerned. Out of all the places Jesus could have been in the, in the synagogue, he sat at the treasury watching. As they came, he said, what are you giving? And I can imagine they're trying to say, but Jesus is private. It's between me and God. He said, I'm God. What are you giving? And as the rich people came and put so much this widow comes along, a poor widow, and throws in two mites. And Jesus at that point thought, 
This is a life lesson. So he calls his disciples, the Bible says. And he says to them, did you see what all those rich people put in? And they said, yeah. I mean, we didn't know how much it was, but they came with bags and bags. He says, well, I want to tell you, certainly, assuredly, that this widow has put more than the rich people. The maths messed their mind up. But this is thousands and millions, and this is just two copper coins. But it's the maths of our kingdom. The maths of our kingdom is not the maths of the other kingdom. The maths of our kingdom is that she gave all that she had. It was sacrificial to her, so it was more than those others. Because those others gave a lot more in a natural, physical sense. But compared to what they had, it wasn't even going to affect anything. But this woman who was poor gave everything that she had. And you know, Paul, he gives this testimony about the church in Macedonia. So don't let people tell you that, you know, oh, be sensible. You know, um, that's what people say all the time. You can't do that. You know, it doesn't make sense. Then we have entered a worldly pattern of giving according to our senses. But we give by the Spirit of God. The sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. And sometimes, in the same way that the Spirit blows and you don't know where it's coming from, sometimes the Spirit will make you do things that are ridiculous in a natural sense, but spiritually they're weighty. So what does Paul say about the church in Macedonia? 2 Corinthians 8. I, I mean, it's a long, 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 long couple of scriptures, um, and I'm, I'm conscious of time. He says, I must tell you about the grace God poured out upon the churches of Macedonia. For even during a season of severe difficulty and tremendous suffering, they became even more filled with joy. From the depths of their extreme poverty, superabundant joy overflowed into an act of extravagant generosity. And then he goes on to give the testimony. What was he saying? He was saying that these guys, they're they are, they are incredible people. They are really spiritual people. They were going through a tough time, a downturn in the economy. But then when they heard that there was a call to support the work, that out of their difficulty, what they didn't have, they somehow eked it out and gave. He says they actually, he says, for I can verify that they spontaneously gave not only according to their means, but far beyond what they could afford. Now, how many know in a natural sense people will say you are being foolish? But we can't take half of the Bible and not follow the other half. Paul says this, these people are incredible. They gave beyond what they have. It was so sacrificial. He says they exceeded our expectations. They begged us for the privilege of sharing in this ministry. What kind of people are these? And then he ends with this testimony to them. He says you do well and excel in every respect. 
in unstoppable faith, in powerful preaching, in revelation knowledge, in passionate devotion, in sharing the love we have shown to you. And then he says to them, make sure that you continue to excel in grace-filled generosity. Number four, and let me rush through these ones. What other field, the fourth field? Other believers, especially those in the household of faith, it's the way of the church. The early church got it right. Oh, the early church was a special place. The church of the Acts of the Apostles, that was a special place. Those who had made sure that those who didn't have did not suffer as long as they were part of the church. The early church is the only church that eradicated poverty within its, within its, its walls. An example for us. So in church, we look, we look around. We're attentive. We're asking the Holy Spirit because there's a sister who's there and doesn't know how she's going to get home. Do you think God will bring her to church and not have given somebody in church the means by which she will, by which she will get home? No, God would have. It's just whether the person knows that what he's been given is seed to the sower, not bread to the eater. So it's not to go and buy a meat pie. It is to give somebody. And when you open up yourself to the Spirit, the Spirit brings people like that to you. The Spirit makes you sensitive to that. Those around me, they always say to me, but how did you know that that person was in that position. I said, I didn't, I, don't, I didn't really know, like, no. I just kind of felt it. Of course, it was a prompting of the Spirit. Ask that person how they're doing. Ask them how life is going on. And sometimes, I don't even ask them. I just put the gift and send it. And the joy when someone calls you and says, you cannot believe that last night, this is a true story. The family said to me, yesterday we sat down with the children to say to them they will not be able to go back to school. And the next morning, the Lord said to me, the school fees, part of the school fees for those children, send it to them. It's a true story. You can imagine my joy when they told me that the, the night before, as a family, they had said this, and then the father of the family had led them to pray that God will make a way. And God chose to use me to make that way. It was humbling to me. It was so humbling to me. And it made me afraid of God. So look around you. And it's not, sometimes it's not much. It's just a few pounds here, a few pounds there. Just look around you. You can sense it. The Spirit will prompt you. But when we are so focused on our own lives and our own issues and our own problems, I'm sure you've heard the story about the two men who were at the Wailing Wall praying, and they were praying loud. 
And let's just assume one man was praying, oh God, give me a breakthrough, you know, this, this, this business thing, give me a breakthrough, the profits I will make, I will take care of you, you know, I will do all kinds of things. He was praying really loud, and then next to him, the other man was praying even louder. And he heard what the man was asking for. And he thought, that's what you want? He just put his hand and said, God has answered your prayer, move. Because you, you're, you're, I, I need space to pray for my own. I mean, it's a bit of a joke, but you get the point. God uses us to answer each other's prayers. Look around you. So Paul says in Romans 12, verse 13, take a constant interest in the needs of God's beloved people and respond by helping them and eagerly welcome people as guests into your home. Be hospitable. Take, a, take an interest. Ask. And as you do, the Spirit of God uses you. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. If anyone sees 1 John 3, 17 and 18, if anyone sees a fellow believer in need and has the means to help him, generic, him or her, yet shows no pity and closes his heart against him, how is it even possible that God's love lives in him? How is it possible? Beloved children, our love can't be an abstract theory we only talk about, but a way of life demonstrated through our loving deeds. Number five, those who feed you spiritually. I remember this morning I was reading the scripture out to my wife, and my wife said, oh, no. <laughs> when, you, when you talk about this, they're going to climb all over you on social media. I said, I said, wife, I can never stop preaching the word of God. I just can't. I can't be intimidated into. Because it is scriptural. Galatians 6, verse 6. And those who are taught the word must share all good things with their teacher. Listen to this phrase. A sharing of wealth takes place between them. The wealth of the word has been given to someone. That person, the Bible encourages that person to share material wealth with that person who gave the word. Has it been abused? Absolutely. Have people behind the pulpit manipulated it? Definitely. Have people used it to extort? Absolutely so. Does the, do the actions of people negate the word of God? Definitely not. And it's not just the pastor, the vicar, the priest. It's the people who pour the word of God into you. So you're in a team in Jesus' house. You have a team leader who's constantly praying for you, constantly teaching you, share some wealth with the person. Give the person a blessing. You know, some churches have it as a graphic culture. It's not our culture here. Frankly, when I've preached in churches like that, it's a bit disconcerting for me because as you're preaching, someone gets up with an envelope and comes and lays it on the altar. Have you, have you ever been in any of those churches? Now, I get the point. What they're saying is that word you said, you said now it touched me, and I want to obey the scripture. It's just disconcerting for me as the preacher when people are coming up and laying envelopes on the altar. But the principle of it, 
And it's a principle that I live. I wish I could get some of them to share the, the, share the testimony of how as a constant part of my life, those who speak into my life in any way, I bless them. They share the wealth of the word with me and I share with them out of what God has blessed me with. And half of them don't need it. But it's my obedience to Scripture. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 11, so if we've sowed many spiritual gifts amongst you, is it too much to expect to reap material gifts from you? He asks us asks, asks as a question. He says, we've sowed many spiritual gifts amongst you. So is it too much to expect to reap material gifts from you? And you know, it's, it's not just, you know, the heads of your teams or the elders in the church or the deacons or deaconesses. Yes, all that. The pastors, yes, all that. But you know, I remember the story this morning. I was, one of those down times, I was browsing through social media. And I came across uh, an Instagram post by a gentleman who I know. Um, he's a a bishop in London. And you know how the Instagram posts give you a snippet? And so when I heard the snippet, it said continue watch, watching as it does. So I pressed that because I thought, mm, that sounds interesting. And for the next 30 minutes, I was listening to what this guy had to say. Never heard the guy preach before. I know him. He pastors a church, a much smaller church in London. Never heard him preach before. I was riveted by what he was saying. It was speaking into the core of my being. It was addressing a place where I was at that point in time. And so once I finished, I sent a, a message to his wife, WhatsApp message to his wife. I said, hi, da-da-da-da-da. I said, please, can you send me your husband's account details? She was so shocked. She called me. She said, what is happening? Because I don't call them, but I happen to have his number. I said, just send me his account details because God has used him to change my life. And she sent the account details. I just wired some money into his account. It was obedience to the scripture. He's blessed me in that way. Let me find something and sow into his life. He might not want it. He can then give it to the poor. That's his own prerogative. But I am obeying the scripture and sowing into his life. Number six, we come towards the end. One more and we're done. Parachurch ministries. Not many pastors will preach what I'm about to preach because there's this whole thing between churches and parachurch ministries. But I've come to the conclusion, that's why we're setting up the greenhouse, that the, 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 the world is not going to be saved by churches alone, that there are many parachurch ministries that are doing a good work. And so when Paul talks to the church in Philippi, he's talking as the head of a parachurch ministry. He says in Philippians 4, verses 14 to 16, You've so graciously provided for my essential needs during this season of difficulty. He, they were not providing for his needs as a church pastor. 
It was in his ministry. For I want you to know that the Philippian church was the only church that supported me in the beginning as I went out to preach the gospel. He says, you were the only church that sowed into me financially, and when I was in Thessalonica, you supported me for well over a year. There are many parachurch ministries that are doing an amazing work. And oftentimes, the Spirit of God will direct you towards one. There's nothing wrong with being in a church you're giving your tithes, your offerings, you're supporting the work of the church and supporting some other ministry that is not a church, but that is doing the Great Commission, that is taking the love of Christ in a practical way somewhere. And you know, there's a, there's a scripture that we always quote. Pentecostals love this scripture. Philippians 4.19. And I don't know if I've ever told you the story of Philippians 4.19 in my life. I flew into America, um, and it was interesting because I flew into a part of America where I was the only black man on the plane. It's a big plane, but I was the only black man because of that area of America. So when I landed and we're going through immigration, I stood out like a sore thumb. I'm not just the only black man, I'm six foot six of a black man, I stood out. So when I got to the immigration official, he says, what are you, what are you doing here? I said, I'm, I'm here to preach in a church. He says, so are you, are you a pastor? I said, yes. He said, um, what does Philippians 4.19 say? <laughs> Do you know, I'm confessing, I had a mental block. I could not remember Philippians 4.19. So he looked at me. He says, you're sure you're a pastor? I said, I'm a pastor. I wanted to say, Google, Google my name. I'm a pastor, please. He said, pastor? You don't know Philippians 4.19? You know, burly American guy. Burly with tattoos under his uniform. By this time, I was sweating. My brain had gone on into lockdown. I could not remember Philippians 4.19. So he says to me, Pastor? I said, yes, sir. He said, what was the last message you preached? What scripture you used, Pastor? My brain went into lockdown. <laughs> I could not remember the last message. The truth is that I just said, God, forgive me for this lie. I'm about to tell a lie. I said, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, and I began to quote the scripture. I said, God, just forgive me because I'm not going into America. Now, this, this preaching is over at this place. This man is going to say I'm fake. And then he looked at me and then he stamped it. He said, Pastor, read your Bible. <laughs> what does Philippians 4.19 say? Go and say it boldly. How many love that scripture? The scripture is conditional. He was saying it three verses after he had spoken about the testimony of the Philippian church. He said, that church supported me. They sowed into this ministry, and oh, for what that church did, my God shall supply all their need. 
So people who are not doing what the Philippian church did, imagine that the word of God is some incantation that they can just chant and it happens. That's why it's not happening. Because it is conditional on a heart of generosity. And lastly, the nation of Israel. When the Lord gave me this revelation, probably 14 years ago, there is not one month that goes by without me sowing a seed into the nation of Israel. Because I understand. The politics of it is not the issue. Are the politicians in Israel doing certain things they should, they, 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 maybe they shouldn't do? Possibly. But that's not the politics of it. It's the prophetic instruction from God to his church. And you know, when the politics of it got a bit too much for me, I thought, God, let me find a group of Messianic Jews and start with them. And that's how I started. Of course, I'm a, I'm a supporter of the nation of Israel. I might not like certain parts of the politics, and I'm pretty vocal about that, but as a nation, as a people, I'm a supporter of the nation of Israel because I understand that that's the mandate of the church. And then when I met Messianic Jews, I thought, this is even amazing that these are Jews who love Jesus the way I love Jesus. They're going to get all my support. And where does that come from? As I end, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. That land is where the nation of Israel, part of that land is where the nation of Israel is. That land that God said he would show him. He says, I will make you a great nation. And hasn't he done that? I will bless you and make your name great. And hasn't he done that? And you shall be a blessing. And isn't that nation a blessing? And then he goes on, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. There is a curse on people who persecute the Jews. There is a curse from God on people who persecute the Jews. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Once I understood that, I will bless those who bless you. For the last 14 or 15 years, not one month has passed without me in my little way sowing a seed and being a blessing. And all these seven things I've shared with you, I believe that they are covenant fields. That as we obey the, the word in them with a heart of generosity, as we're led by the Spirit, we see God do amazing things in our lives. The nature of the kingdom is that the stingy man ends up without and not just without material things, but without the joy, the peace that comes from God. 
but the man who knows how to cast his bread onto many waters. You know, and I could share with you different things that I could share with you. I never stay in a hotel room without blessing the cleaners. My wife will tell you. I always leave a note for them every day. Some days I miss it. Let me not say every day. Some days we're rushing out. But it's, it's part of my life. I write a handwritten note to them, to the cleaners, because people forget the cleaners. Nobody gives the cleaners anything. So I write a handwritten note. You know, thank you for cleaning this room. We really appreciate it. I pray God will bless you. And here is a little token from me and my family. And I leave it there every day. It, 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 that, that's how Christians are. That's how we should be. And who knows where that, where that cleaner is and how that might be a blessing. That's casting your bread onto many waters, scattering your seed. And when you think about the sowing and reaping as a metaphor, if you take a handful of seed and just throw it, how many know wherever it lands, you didn't plant it, it wasn't meticulous, but that seed is going to bear fruit, more likely than not. That's what the Bible calls casting your bread onto waters. You sow here, you sow there, you reap, you sow here, show acts of generosity there. You're just a generous person. Somebody opens the door, you give them something. Someone serves you in a restaurant, you give them something. And all the time, you're looking for an opportunity to share the gospel. And your generosity tends to open a door for you to share the gospel. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Give God a clap offering. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Father, just take your word and breathe upon it and let it, let it just grow in our hearts. Let it bring illumination, Heavenly Father. Let, let us become those, the Philippian church, the Macedonian church, the early church in the wilderness, a heart of generosity, the church in the Acts of the Apostles, a heart of generosity. Father, we thank you and we bless you. And as I end, easily, the most generous act recorded ever was by our Father in heaven, that he gave his Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. That trumps any kind of generosity that we might exhibit. He gave his son to die a horrific death on a cross, to take on your sin and my sin, that we might have an eternity with him. What a tragedy if we don't receive that gift. And I know many here have, but there might be one or two people here in-house or one or two people online who haven't received of that generous act of our Father in heaven, the ultimate act of generosity. It'd be my privilege, my honor to pray with you 
as you open up your heart and receive it. It's a gift. Receive Him. And so if you're that person, I just want to ask you to say this prayer with me, mean the words, and He comes into your heart. You become a member of His family. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of salvation that your son Jesus is. I receive him today into my life as my Lord and Savior. I ask for grace from you to turn away from anything that is displeasing to you in my life, anything that is sinful, as I embrace a life of obedience to you. By this prayer, I declare that I am now a child of yours, part of your family, born again today into your family, and I thank you, Heavenly Father, for it. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. Welcome to God's family. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. 